Welcome to Green Apple Pod, for people who want to think about education a little bit differently. I'm Jessica Enderlin Natsum, a public school teacher and PhD candidate in education policy. I've spent nearly a decade observing and investigating how to make education the thing that's going to make our whole society happier and healthier. Now, I'm fighting to make that our reality. Are you new here? If so, I'm glad you're here. But just so you know, this series makes way more sense if you listen to the episodes in order. You can find the first episode, COVID and Teacher Retention, and get started there to get the full story. We'll be right here waiting for you when you get back. Everybody complains about their boss from time to time, right? It's something I've been told constantly when I consider switching careers out of the classroom. There's always going to be something or someone you don't like, Jessica. Okay, I agree. I'm persnickety like that. But I'm not actually alone. More and more people are voicing their dislike of poor working conditions or terrible supervisors on social media, in the news, in their decisions to quit their jobs. It's even a running gag in the hit ABC series Abbott Elementary, where the school's principal, Ava Coleman, demonstrates many qualities and many characteristics that so many teachers find familiar in their own supervisors. To be clear, it's a satirical portrayal of school leadership, and we can laugh about it when it's on TV. But some of her qualities aren't actually fiction for many educators. This isn't to say that all principals everywhere are terrible. For school leaders listening to this, as well as teachers, there are examples and there are anecdotes, albeit very real and unfortunately common ones, that have resulted in an exodus from the classroom. I hesitated whether to include this segment in the series, partially because I don't want it to seem like a gripe fest, but the more I reflected on what I heard from other teachers, the more I realized it's critical to understanding the full story on teacher attrition. Plenty of teachers stay, despite low pay, despite overwhelming responsibilities, despite emotional burnout. But those same teachers may find poor leadership, poor school climate, poor administration to be the final straw. Today's episode highlights some of the themes I heard throughout interviews with teachers. Basically, how do leadership, school climate, and culture all contribute to the teacher shortage? This is going to be another two-part episode. In the first part, we're going to hear from Jason and Jessica. In the second part, we'll hear from Katie and an instructional coach named Becca about the lack of respect for the profession, about struggles to advance into leadership roles, and about the micromanagement of teachers. At the end, we'll hear more from Becca about what school leaders can do to help their teachers and stem the tides of teachers flowing out of the classroom. So let's get started. I'd like to introduce you to Jason. Jason spent five years working in an extremely rural, and I mean very, very rural, Title I school in Arkansas. At the time, it was the poorest county in the state. He was a non-traditionally licensed teacher with a background in languages as well as math. So he started teaching high school math back in 2015. When he thinks back on his years there, he remembers the lack of support and the isolation that came with the position starting on day one, and which ultimately sent him packing to another field of education, outside of the K-12 classrooms where he was clearly needed. First year teaching was was a mess. Constant behavior problems. 
Uh, no, it didn't feel like I had a whole lot of real support outside of the classroom. I didn't have any instructional support or behavioral support in terms of bettering my practice, uh, though I had more behavioral support than I had instructional support. Uh, literally, they had first-year teachers developing all our own unit plans and lesson plans from the day one. Um, and very quickly, it was clear that whatever our fields were, we were probably the expert in the school, right? We didn't have any co-teachers teaching the same subject. Uh, my teacher coach was a ha- had her certification in elementary education and math. Um, so she didn't know anything about secondary math education, or she didn't know very much. She was pretty helpful with some, she was kind of helpful with some of the behavioral support elements, but uh, not not super helpful. Jason's school was the kind of school where there wasn't going to be a lot of support. It had a lot of turnover, which meant there weren't many veteran teachers there. So he doesn't remember having much help during his first year when he was teaching geometry and algebra two. He does remember the school was in financial and academic distress though. And as a result, it required the school to bring in some outside consultants due to state accountability policies. Um, So, but even, even some of the outside outsourced help, oh, I forgot their name, but the state sent in some, is it Bogleman? Uh, uh, Betterman. Betterman. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. So that that was supposed to be like instructional outsource support for teachers. But well, what, what was the man's name? You know, the, the, he had his PhD in like education or something. He was not very helpful, though he got paid a lot of money and drove a nice car. According to Jason, this consultant came by a few times a week, drove up in his shiny Porsche. Yes, he had a Porsche. He got a new one every year. It was very noticeable. But overall, he wasn't really all that helpful with helping Jason learn how to teach. I actually dug through the school board minutes for this district, trying to figure out how much was paid to this company for consulting work. I did find out that they started working in the school a year before Jason got there, but I wasn't able to find a copy of their bid or the amount the contract was approved for. I did dig up one interesting note from the board minutes, though. In a December meeting in Jason's first year, one of the consultants came before the board trying to give a report of, you know, what was going on, all these different things. But one of the things he was quoted as saying was that the inconsistency in the retention of the teaching staff was hindering student growth, which was why his firm had been hired in the first place. The state had brought this company in because the school had low test scores. The students weren't growing. They weren't meeting adequate yearly progress. That was still a thing at the time before they reauthorized um, No Child Left Behind into a different piece of legislation. Because of this, because they were having such difficulty getting students to grow academically, which was caused by that poor teacher retention, That's why these consultants had been brought in in the first place. And according to Jason, they weren't even all that helpful. But those sorts of outsource groups are supposed to be there for like instructional support. But they were they were never very helpful and certainly were not helpful first year. I felt very isolated. Um, I'd occasionally have people come into my classroom, but it was um, never very helpful. (laughs) 
And really the only people you could go to were like older teachers. But once again, like in a rural high school in the Delta, you're you're the content expert, right? Nobody else teaches your subject area. Uh, there's no uh, there's no other geometry teacher. You're the geometry teacher. It, by fifth year, I was the only high school math teacher. So for nine wow. through twelve, I was the only high school math teacher. And wow. all the, they, <laughs> well, they weren't with me; they were online through virtual Arkansas. Some nonsense. Um, so, uh, like, there's really no co-teacher you can turn to for advice or support. Yeah, you, know, you typically have slightly more experienced um, teachers who might who might come to you, um, but they're busy and not teaching the same thing you're teaching, right? Um, and you talk about going to like older teachers for help and you can to a degree, but also I, I want to point this out for people who are listening. It's not their job. They're not getting paid to and them helping you is legitimately altruism. And I don't say this to be mean because if a new teacher came to me um, and I'm hardly a veteran, I've only got seven years, I would obviously help them as best I could. But you're then putting even more on a plate that's overloaded um, because I'm sure you had this by the time you were in fourth and fifth year when Joe was coming to you. So it's. Uh, And and it's ridiculous, right? Because a fifth year teacher is still, I wouldn't say a novice teacher anymore, but like a third year teacher shouldn't be the most experienced core content teacher in the building. Right. That's just insane. Um, And that just speaks to the reality of these sorts of situations with high turnover. By his fifth year, Jason was the most experienced secondary math teacher in the district. He was basically the most experienced teacher in all core subjects except for history. No one who taught English had more experience than him. No one who taught science had more experience than him. He had only been teaching five years. This was extremely isolating for Jason who lived through a revolving door of teachers coming in and out of the building, never staying for long, but all of them needing help, all of them needing support, never able to get it. And what do you think the impact of that was on their kids? Because when you're building the airplane while it's flying, it doesn't matter how smart you are or how hardworking you are. There's no lifeline to help you. So can you tell me about that, I guess, the beginning of that fifth year and when you started, what made you start saying, all right, it's time to go. It was actually, it actually began, honestly, the halfway through my third year. Mm-hmm. Um, third year, I started applying to other schools. But at that point, all my friends that I had developed in the first couple of years, like all, pretty much everyone I had started out with by the end of my third year was gone. But I would say definitely third year, that was my biggest reason for wanting out um, because like my support structure, my friends and the people in the community I knew had all left. Suddenly I had to make new friends with TFAs who started to look increasingly younger than me. Um, and that definitely was a thing by fifth year. I felt felt very old by fifth year um, because pretty much all, as you said, the low high attrition rate, uh, low t- retention means that they're constantly be re- being replaced by new TFAs, new ATCs who are fresh out of undergrad. 
Like I said before, Jason started at this school through a non-traditional program, and he came in with several other non-traditional people. He wasn't a part of Teach for America or TFA, but he knew several teachers who came through TFA in and out of that school. By his third year, most of his friends who had entered at the same time were gone. And as Jason stayed, it was like Groundhog Day over and over and over again, constantly listening to the same old problems just from new people. All the while, administration was also constantly turning over alongside the teacher turnover, which made for inconsistent cycles of principals and consultants and coaches and facilitators who would bring new initiatives and ideas with every passing year that would quickly be abandoned when the new batch came in. The administration constantly rotated, so I didn't, never knew any of them. But uh, but at that point, it probably was like I was looking more at long-term career prospects. And I knew I didn't want to, like, I knew teaching wasn't a le- legitimate way to advance my career, right? Like that, I couldn't, I, my salary was never going to advance by very much, um, even if I, even with two masters at that point, um, you only get paid for the first masters and then you get masters plus hours for the second, um, which it's still not, the master bump is nice, but the master plus bump is not nice. I knew I like, I, I knew it wasn't sustainable. Burnt out by the system and frustrated by the effects that constant turnover had on the school. Jason started applying for graduate programs and planning to leave. But as he did, and once he got out of the classroom two years ago, he started realizing that part of his frustration wasn't just the environment. It was the messages he was getting from society about his former job. Um, By my fifth year, was just, I wouldn't necessarily say for money, because money's not the only aspect of it, right? Like, I wanted to be more than just a teacher, in quotation marks. Like, I wanted the, like, people respect teachers, but it's not enough, I feel. Like, I I wanted a more legitimate field. Um, Like, people people respect doctors, right? They respect doctorates. Um, So I'd definitely say the... uh, the brand recognition of a PhD, that that sort of um, the branding was important to me by my by my fifth year, and I, I wanted something with that was a little bit more um, had a little bit more esteem, I guess. But definitely the the money was problematic at that point too. I was really tired of making peanuts, so I went back and got my. I'm getting my PhD right now, so I'm making even less, but. <laughs> yeah but at the same time too I think that's really important what you said and I'm saying this because I'm going to counter it honestly you say like people respect respect teachers have you seen the internet lately (laughs) (laughs) they really don't um you're right they do not I I I was saying that to be nice but you're right they don't respect teachers um people say so many awful things about public school teachers and this is coming from someone who loves teachers, whose family's all on teaching, whose tw- identical brother is in teaching. So I, I, I know at the top, teachers can be wonderful people and very, very competent and way better than anyone else in the field. Um, but the, the lack of respect, the lack of money has created a field that is uh, not what it wants. Uh, I mean, I don't want to 
say, the positive things about the past, but it's not in a good state right now. If any of those things had changed, like if there was suddenly more money or if suddenly a new administration had come in and things were great, or if none of us had left, if the old gang was still working there, whatever, like, would that have changed your decision? Or do you think you still would have made the same decision to go? Oh, no. When, when I describe what I do right now, right? Like PhD candidate at IU working on my ed policy, uh, ed policy degree, like, like I have, I have a certain pride in that, that I, I didn't really have with teaching. And I don't know if that's my own internalized bias around, around what teaching is. And um, maybe I don't have enough respect for the field, but I swear other people have the same thing. Like when I, when people ask what I do and I tell them they're impressed. Um, when I told people what I did when I was a teacher, they're like, Oh, poor you. Right. How do you deal with those kids? Um, but there, there's, there, I wouldn't say there's respect there. And there, there's just like, Oh, how can you even do that? That's not a, that's a different thing than what I get right now. Jason left the classroom after finishing up the 2019, 2020 school year or when schools closed down in March of 2020, he hadn't planned to leave in the middle of a pandemic. He had already been expect- accepted into a PhD program and was planning to leave, but he was gone. He was one more teacher out the door in a school that clearly, clearly needed qualified educators. He has since enrolled in a PhD program in education policy, and he hopes to study the policies around school takeovers, which is a common problem he's experienced in his own district. He's excited for all the opportunities he'll have once he graduates, which are considerably more open than when he worked as a high school math teacher. While some may say that if he had really wanted to make more money or have more respect or possibly change some of the culture and climate at his school to better promote retention by becoming a school leader, the reality is it's not actually that easy to get one of those jobs. In fact, lots of teachers aspire to school leadership, whether as instructional coaches or principals or other specialized positions. But those positions aren't like cars on Oprah. Not everyone gets one. Sometimes even the most experienced teacher, the most passionate teacher, the most deserving teacher, the only teacher who is certified for the job when they literally cannot fill the position, as you'll see in a minute, can struggle to find a role in school leadership that will help them make change. One former educator who saw that firsthand is Jessica, who got her start in the same rural district as Jason. Although she grew up in Detroit, she first started teaching in the Delta, bringing with her her sons and a desire to be a mentor for girls and young women. So I'm Jessica, originally from the up north uh, metropolitan area, Detroit. They relocated us um, to rural, rural America. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I fell in love with it, honestly. I fell in love with, with students. I fell in love with the community where I was placed. Um, it felt like home. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I come from the city, the neighborhood I grew up in was very close knit. And so that reminded me a lot of where I was placed. And then it just, you know, it just worked. I'm a great relationship builder, which I think is the foundation of good teaching. And, you know, it just worked for me. And I stayed in the classroom for about seven years. 
Jessica quickly embedded herself in her school community, becoming a mentor and an advocate for her students. Looking back, she doesn't remember having major struggles with classroom management. And she attributes a lot of this to being older than most starting teachers, since she didn't start fresh out of college. She was a mom herself, and she was a Black woman in a predominantly Black school. So for me, I'm just, I'm really, really good with kids. And because I'm a mom, like I'm what you would call um, a non-traditional TFAer. So I came in, I didn't come in right after college. Um, I came in after I had graduated. I had worked a little bit. I have a family. Um, So that's, they consider us non-traditional. And so I came in with this kind of like mom attitude. Mm-hmm. So I I addressed them as children and as children um, who I was responsible for loving for and caring for, for that, you know, for those six hours or whatever. And they responded to me in that way mm-hmm. um, of like this big sister or like even this mom figure. So from day one, I, didn't, I really didn't have any issues. Um, and I just fundamentally believe in mutual respect, which I, a lot of adults don't when it comes mm-hmm. to kids. Um, which I also think is is important. And so when you have someone who's coming in like, hey, you know, I'm going to respect y'all, you know, and I expect the same in return. If you've grown up in an environment where particularly in the Black community where the idea is, you know, do as I say, not as I do, or because I said so, mm-hmm. um, speak when you're spoken to kind of, of, of mentality. Hearing an adult tell you that is kind of like, oh, wow this is new, you know, let's see what this is about. Mm -hmm. So I never really had those issues with the kids. Those were always the, the best times. But I do think just growing up, I did grow up in a single parent household, um, low income. So we did have those things in common of just like things you just know because you're from the hood. Like, Mm so, you know, I did have those connections, whereas um, not only because I was black, but um, because I was black and had grown up in similar conditions. I think that is important to name that mm-hmm. how you grow up sometimes can be more important than your skin color when it re- as it relates to kids. Um, because you can be black and just and have grown up very privileged and still not understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that gave me like the fact that I was a woman, um, You know, so I had this very nurturing spirit about me that drew kids in and I looked like them um, and I was successful. And, you know, I had, you know, I had all these things that they um, many of them aspired to have. And I looked like them and I had come from uh, where they had come from. So they really just they just were attached like instantly. I remember having a, a sleepover my first year at my house. My husband left and went out of town. And I invited maybe six of my students over for a sleepover. And they, oh my God, it had to be first semester. Mm-hmm. And I mean, but that's how quickly we connected, you know. And I remember we did the cinnamon challenge and they, and they <laughs> were spitting in my sink. And I was just like, I cannot believe these girls are spitting in my sink. That's just something you just don't do. <laughs> oh, but then we had a great, great time. You know, we had yeah. a great time. And so um, those were the kinds of things, you know, and I'm like, these parents, Something these kids are saying at home about me was enough for these parents to be like, yeah, you can have my seventh grader, you know, mm-hmm. for the overnight, you know, <laughs> a brand new stranger to our community. Um, but I did. And we had a ball, you mm-hmm. know, we had a boss. 
Jessica bonded with her students. She loved her coworkers in her department, and she meshed well with her administrators. But unfortunately, at the end of her first year, Jessica's school went through rifts or reduction in force due to fiscal distress. Basically, there wasn't enough money to pay everyone who worked there. So since Jessica had been the last one hired, she was the first one fired. With three children and having recently relocated, she couldn't afford to wait and see if the school would bring her back on its own. So she found a new job a few miles away in a neighboring community. And I I moved to a larger district just up the street from Mm -hmm. where I was placed. And I secured a high school English uh, position. So I went from seventh grade writing to uh, high school English. So now, you know, responsibilities are greater. Um, as far as testing and things like that, um, the school is huge. I mean, this is in, in comparison to where I had come from. And this is the first time I can remember feeling like, I don't, I don't like the way I feel in this space, you know, not feeling safe mm-hmm. um, because protocols just weren't in place. Um, we had mandatory breakfast duty. Um, and I, it, w- it was this huge cafeteria. The cafeteria was not attached to the school. So it was in a completely other, bi- a total other building mm-hmm. from the school. And it was just all these kids in there. And they're like high schoolers. So they're big as me. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with these high school kids? And you could, mm-hmm. uh, you could see that there was not a culture in place. Mm-hmm. So you're putting me in a space to be this authority figure in a building where it's obvious um, that this relationship has not been established with authority, mm-hmm. that kids do not um, have this reverence or respect for authority figures. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's kind of like, you know, tell them to take their hat off. I'm like, who? <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, like, because when he cusses me out, then what? And, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, um, just not be, not feeling supported in what you're asking me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember one day, my principal was just always distant. She was, she just, she just wasn't. And I, I came from a school where the principal was like my, my grandmother, mm-hmm. you know, to a building where it was like very cold, very like, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you're here, I'm here, so what? And um, I just, I just remember feeling so isolated and so, um, you know, like not looked after. Uh, I guess I was spoiled from my TFA experience and from my first placement that I was like, what? When I asked Jessica for examples of what the lack of safety felt like in her new school, this is the example she gave me. Um, And I mean, this building was, um, (laughs) it was like one of those, those school transformation movies. That's what it reminded me of. Like uh, the bell would ring and it would be 200 kids in the hallway. Mm-hmm. Like bell. So, you know, and I'm like, what, what do I need to do? You know? And so I had established enough firmness to where my kids would run mm-hmm. to the door, you know, and I would be able to get my students to come to class. But the general culture of the building was horrible. 
And one particular day I went upstairs and I was looking for someone. It had to be up during one of my prep periods. And I was looking for something or someone. And I went upstairs, which I never, I never used to go upstairs. I had no reason to go upstairs. And this kids everywhere, completely unsupervised. And I was like, what is this? Like, what is going on here? And I, yeah. I, peeked, I poked my head in one of the doors of this classroom full of students. And I said, um, I said, what is this? One of them was driver's training. And I was like, uh, okay. And so I peeked my head into another door and I said, what is this? And they were like, um, this is keys to college. What? Oh, this is what we're doing. And so the security officer was just walking up and down the hallway, peeking in. Y'all okay? Okay. Y'all okay? Okay. And then he would leave. And so, um, you know, I, mm -hmm. so the first teach parent teacher conference, every parent that I met with who had, whose kid had keys to college on their schedule, I told them, you need to look into that because there's no teacher with them. Look into that. I said the irony of having a class called Keys to College and no one as a place where you dump kids because you are understaffed. Yeah. But you had, and I'm just asking this logistically, like trying to wrap my head around it, and I'm sure it had to do with licensure certification. But then, and I don't want to say you should have had more work to do, but you had three preps then. So was there a mismanagement aspect to it as well? It had to be something because during the time that I had a prep, I could have had those kids. And you could have been building relationships or, I mean, something. maybe that wasn't your certification or your specialty area, but I know you, I know you could have found something meaningful for those kids. Well, what kind of certification do you need? Cause yeah. it, it, whatever I had, it was more than the security guard peeking his hand in the door. Yeah. So. Even with the security guard monitoring students, the school wasn't exactly safe. <laughs> I didn't quit, um, but my husband said I could not go back there. Mm -hmm. um, he would comment on just the the uh, how unsafe the building was, just in general, especially with all of the school shootings and everything that you know was such a was you know always in the news. Um, he would walk through the building; he could literally get in to any door. Um, because uh, every door was unlocked, you know, and I'm talking about a huge school building where anybody off the street can walk in at any time. Um, it was a kind of culture where parents would come into the building and like, you know, walk up to, to teachers and confront them. And it was just like, there was no one there making oh sure that we were safe. And one time a police officer who had partnered with the school to improve security um, dressed in plain clothes with a back plain clothes with a backpack and he came back and reported and he said um I have walked through this entire building and no one has asked me who I was outside the bubble of her small rural school Jessica was struggling there were more kids there were more responsibilities but the resources did not match the demand and it was creating a climate and an environment that didn't feel safe and somehow, despite the lack of support, teachers were the ones with their feet held to the fire when that lack of safety became undeniably apparent. And so I remember one day I was like, I'm not going to duty today. I'm not going. I don't want to go. I don't want to be in that space. Like being in the classroom with my kids felt different because I had that 
relationship. I had those relationships established, but being in this huge cafeteria with these kids who don't know who I am, there's never been anything set up for them to know who I am. Mm -hmm. No, you know, so one morning I just was like, I'm not going. And Mm -hmm. I went to my classroom and I like use that time to um, set up. And that particular day, there was a huge fight, a huge fight in the cafeteria. Yes, there was a huge fight. It spilled out into like the, the, the square, like outside. the It was huge. They had to call the police. My principal comes to my door and she knocks. She like wraps her finger on the window. She's like, there was a huge fight and you weren't on duty and it's your fault. Yeah, because you, you could have stopped it. <laughs> and then she just walked away. And I contemplated leaving at that moment like I remember I cried all day long like because of the schedule I ended up having like three preps like three prep periods that year and so between my three preps and my lunch like I cried in my classroom like I shut the door I turned the lights off and I, I sat in the corner and I cried the entire day I just like pulled it together enough to teach my kids in between. And I just cried. And I sat in the corner and I said, I'm leaving Christmas break and I'm not coming back. And it was like, uh, it had to be close. It had to be close. Maybe November, I, you know, early December, mm-hmm. late November, somewhere around right now, you know, around this time, fall, late fall, um, early winter. And I was like, I'm done. I said, if this is what this is about, like, I'm done. I, I just felt... I felt so alone. Keep that quote in mind, listeners. This is the first time that Jessica thought of leaving teaching. She ended up sticking it out for the rest of the year, and then she was able to transfer back to her original school once they were hiring again. But the lack of safety in the second school just tainted her experience. And the lack of structure and support also affected the students she taught there. But I will say those, and I don't like to say I have favorite kids, but that that class of kids was probably my favorite that I've ever taught. Yeah. And, but it was in the worst place I've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the fact that I was there with them in it made our bond that much stronger because mm-hmm. they knew, just like I knew, that they were not getting what they deserved. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I was in it with them, you know, um, I loved, I loved my time teaching. I love my kids. I did not love my time teaching there, but I love the kids I met there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, man, they, and I, and it's so sad because I'm seeing a lot of, um, with them more than any other class I've taught, I've seen more, negative consequences yeah arise um and it, and it's only because of I mean it's just up the street from where I was but that lack of support and that lack of structure really made a difference in the educational um experience they had so I've had students be murdered I've had students go to jail from that class like and it it is hurtful to see you know um because you know where it where it stems from um kids spend so much time in schools Mm -hmm. and so when they don't get what they deserve a lot of the times the outcome is 
you know, going down this road that was avoidable. So by the time the year ended, Jessica had her old job back at her old school. She typed up her resignation letter. She handed it in. She figured she would be on her way. But something kind of weird happened in the middle of that process. I remember my um, uh, instructional facilitator sitting me down and saying, um, after I turned in my um, resignation letter, that the principal didn't want me to leave. Or it was some conversation we had, but I remember thinking, so why didn't she say anything to me? Like the principal never came to me and said, why are you leaving? Don't leave. Can you stay? Um, and I mean, the work that I was doing and the results that I, re- I was getting in the old school district, I, I brought to um, the new school. Um, so they saw my value, but it was just, I don't know what it was. Unfortunately, this phenomenon is something I've heard of countless times from teachers. They resign, they think of resigning, but leadership never approaches them to say, wait a minute, <laughs> hold up. We need you. The kids need you. You do a really good job. What can I do to get you to stay? This isn't to say it's the teacher's job to stay and martyr themselves in an unsafe, unstructured school just because a principal comes and asks. They still very well have the right to leave. But how can you expect to retain teachers in high turnover schools if you aren't having hard yet necessary conversations with your staff about why they're leaving and what you can do to improve conditions for the next person in their place so you aren't dealing with this problem all over again. Jessica went back to her original school, excited to be back where she had started and to have more community and collaboration with her department and a safer environment and a more stable work life. Unfortunately, the fiscal distress that had caused her to lose her job a year earlier was still ruminating in the district. And the only way I can describe it is to say that there was drama. And so um, I went back to to my previous neighborhood and uh, taught at the high school. Mm -hmm. Um, At this point, we had gotten taken over by the state. Mm-hmm. which was the best thing that that had happened to us because wow. and the reason was and the reason why is because uh I'm, there was so much tension between the superintendent and the and the school board so um politics you know and and the school board would just just adamantly reject anything the superintendent proposed even if it was things that would help the district Mm-hmm. Just because of their this day for her, um, so we were just really stalled, and we couldn't we couldn't move forward. And so once the state took over, they dis they disbanded the school board, mm-hmm. um, and they became the school board. And they literally walked in and were like, "Tell us what you need, and we'll give it to you. Tell us what you need to be successful, and you got it." And so it was like a teacher's dream. Um, this was the first year I got quality professional development. Yeah, um, we partnered with an organization outside of the school um, with some really, really knowledgeable folks. I got this amazing woman and former teacher who could come in and just command the room, teach me all of these amazing strategies. My kids loved her every mm-hmm. time she got to come. Miss Nancy, uh, every oh, time yeah. she came. <laughs> yes, yes. I heard um, about her. <laughs> yes, she is phenomenal. Um and so it was just great. It was great. And then, uh, I mean, so we're building this team. Scores are improving. 
climate and culture is improving. Um, kids feel good to be there. We're like, yes, this is what we've been wanting to do. <sighs> what happened is they said, okay, we're going to let you all do this yourself now. <laughs> we've been here a year or so, you know, two years. Now you guys should be able to take it from here, you know, and uh, the state kind of backed out. We came out of academic distress. Mm-hmm. Um, the state backed out and backed up. And we um, got the same old, same old folks back on the school board. And it was a mess again. Since 2020, people hear a lot more about school board drama. But it's usually in the form of parents or legislators or lobbyists bringing up issues with, you know, masks, books, critical race theory that isn't even taught in the schools, things like that. Jessica's experience was back in the mid-2010s. But her issue with the school board wasn't parents. It was the school board versus the superintendent. You can go back through the minutes from that time and even find a few videos on YouTube of meetings at the State Department and see that it is an unpleasant, unproductive relationship that ultimately puts students in the middle. Decisions surrounding items such as purchasing curriculum or hiring staff were delayed or tabled, and it seriously hindered the school's ability to move forward. One of these items very personally and professionally affected Jessica, and she still remembers how the board's leadership contributed to her eventually leaving that school. One particular um, issue that we ran into was our counselor retired he had been counselor for 30 years 25 years or something mm-hmm. he wasn't a great counselor but he was the counselor you know he yeah was, you know he, you kind of yeah. need one of those in a high school <laughs> <laughs> you think you think that's yeah. so, so crazy how why do you need a counselor so um we had we went through about three mm-hmm. um counselors so like every year we were there that I had come back we had a new counselor Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talked to my principal and I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about going back to school. Now the, the classroom had become very restrictive for me. Um, I personally need a lot of autonomy in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, teaching is not that mm-hmm. <laughs> teaching is not that. And so I had begun to feel very suffocated in the classroom. So I love teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, what I don't love is <laughs> Not being able to pee when I want to. Um, I don't love not being able to call off or feeling guilty about calling off because, you know, it was almost more work to call off mm-hmm. than it was to just show up and get it over with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having to like plan all of this stuff and make sure your kids are busy because you don't know what kind of sub you're going to get. You might get one of those rare gems who's going to actually get up and try to be a teacher in your space or most likely you're going to get somebody who's going to sit there on their phone for the whole period. So what can I do to keep my kids busy? Because if my kids aren't busy, stuff's going to get broken. Stuff's going to be missing. Stuff's going to be disorganized. And so all of that stress, then I got kids texting me all day. Oh, such and such is doing this. You know, so this is the stuff that was happening. Like I'm at home and kids are like, why are you not here? Um, it's so, so, you know, it's just that stress of that guilt. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy just the lack of, um, you know, teachers are just not treated as professionals. We're not considered the experts of the, of the field, you know, so people don't come and ask teachers, 
what should we be doing to help kids? You know, they give you all of these things and say, this is the new, we're going to try this, we're going to try this. Um, every year something is changing and I just felt really powerless. Um, so I didn't enjoy that feeling. Um, and I just didn't enjoy just the weight and the pressure, especially being a, a tested area. Um, you know, being in English where everybody's looking at you and your scores and what your kids are doing. And I just, and I, I graduated at the beginning of um, No Child Left Behind. So I missed kind of like that focus on standardized um, teach uh, testing and teaching. Mm-hmm. I didn't go through that. Um, and I just kept thinking like, if you just teach kids what kids need to know, they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just like, I just had such a different educational experience that having to do that to kids just felt wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were suffocating for all of those reasons. Um, just, just to name a few. Jessica, who had been driven by a desire to be a mentor for youth throughout her entire career, saw the opening in the counselor's position. And for her, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to make a difference but still stay in a school and have a positive impact on kids. The school had dealt with counselor turnover for years by that point. They had never managed to find a permanent person for the position. Every single year, they scrambled to find another one. By the time Jessica was starting to get her certification, no one was even applying for the role anymore. It was causing the district a lot of problems. And again, Students were the ones paying the price as there was no person who was educated on schedule making and graduation requirements to help the students navigate their careers. By then, Jessica's eldest son was in high school, and so she saw firsthand as a parent how difficult it was to make sure a student got a good schedule so that they could graduate on time, let alone make sure they had a schedule they actually enjoyed. Um, talked to my principal. My principal said, do the counseling role because that'll fill a gap that we have in the building. Yeah. Um, Cause we keep having this turnover with the, with the counselors. I said, okay, that makes sense. So I went back. Um, I got my master's in school counseling. So I'm going into my sixth year in the classroom. I'm in my coursework. We don't have a counselor. The superintendent calls me over the summer and says, um, I want you to apply for the counseling position. Oh, okay. You know, because they can do like a little waiver mm-hmm. and give me, put me on a plan you know, and I could be working in that role as I finish my coursework. Mm-hmm. So I applied, um, did the interview, goes up against the board, goes up to the board. The board says no. Um, okay. Boy doesn't want me to be counselor. Um, board says she teaches English. We don't need kids on computers doing, you know, English work. Okay. Basically, the board explained that it denied hiring Jessica as counselor because they couldn't afford to lose an English teacher. Remember, this is a very high turnover district. And English wasn't a subject you could just put kids on a computer to learn if they couldn't find another teacher to teach it. And the district was already having to do that in several other classes due to the teacher shortage. But not having a counselor was causing serious problems. Within a year of this, the district would actually get called out by the state for having several students graduate without actually fulfilling all of the course requirements, which caused dozens of students to have to take last-minute online makeup classes. It was clear a counselor was needed, and there was no other applicant besides Jessica, so she started asking around until she was able to find a solution. So another friend of mine that I had met there was also in Teach for America. She had taught, um, she had been teaching Spanish Mm -hmm. because she's a 
Spanish speaker, but she had gone to school and got a degree for English and mm-hmm. had actually wanted to be an English teacher. Mm-hmm. So over the summer, she got certified to teach English. Mm-hmm. So then we all, right? Because the school board is saying this is the issue. The school board is saying we don't want kids on mm-hmm. computers for English. Problem solved. She's certified in English. She's going to teach my kids. We're going to put her students on computers for Spanish because mm-hmm. you have to have a counselor in high school. Like, that's a non-negotiable. You, yeah. you have to have a counselor. So we did that. Kids got moved. We, we worked it out. We went back up to the board. The board says no. And actually, the president of the board at the time was um, noted as saying, what are they doing over there? They got a Spanish, a Spanish teacher teaching English. And it's very derogatory way. Yeah. Um, as if because she was a Spanish teacher and was bilingual, that she was unable or incapable of teaching English, even though she had a degree in the subject, which he never asked. Do you get what I meant about problems with the board now? Now, the school was without a counselor, but it still had kids, kids who needed schedules, teachers who had grades being entered, kids who needed help with applications for college. It was chaos. Jessica began working as the de facto counselor while juggling her full-time teaching duties because there had to be a counselor. Who else was going to do it? But it was hard and it was getting painful. Mm -hmm. So because it has to be done and nobody else is there to do it. Um, So I'm teaching and I'm counseling. I still have one of my classes, at least. I know I have my first period senior still. Mm -hmm. So I'm like in there with them and then I'll get called to the counseling office to do something. And I'm like, I'm sorry, guys. I know we're talking about Othello, but I got to go. I'll be back. You Mm -hmm. know, my kids are like, why are you leaving us? You know, and I remember them, one of them. And these are, mind you, these are the kids I started with. These are Mm -hmm. the seventh graders I started with that I'm now teaching as seniors. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of them said one day, like, we are important too. Why do you keep, why do you keep leading us? And that was just like, Mm. I'm trying y'all. Like I'm trying, you know, and it was just so, it was just so hard, you know, to know that I was not serving them well. And, and that had been that had been the reframe in the back of my mind when I wanted to get out of the classroom because as much as I enjoyed it, I knew that I was not serving them well. So it was um, down to the wire. We are getting ready to be audited by states coming in to make sure we got our stuff together. And so the superintendent moves forward to make me the uh, substitute counselor, which they don't need board approval to do. Mm-hmm. And the conversation before the board was, well, if we do, if we make it official, will you at least give her her counselor pay, which is, you know, like this bonus you get on top? Yeah, I mean, if she's doing work, she's a counselor, she's doing work. Yeah, sure. I just remember the tech coming through with like, they voted no again. Now, mind you, at this point, I'm already approved. I am substitute counselor. I'm working in the position. And they didn't even have the decency to pay me. Mm -hmm. I was just like, I'm leaving. Like, and I remember I was crying. Kids have never made me cry. Like, some teachers cry (laughs) because of interactions with kids. A student has never made me cry. Mm -hmm. But administration, (laughs) 
(laughs) administration in this role has made me cry more times than I can count. And I remember just crying because I just felt like I had given so much of myself to try to show that I was there, that I was willing to help, that I wanted to help. And no matter what I did, it wasn't enough. And that's when I was like, you will always be an outsider, which is something that you don't pay attention to until you become an outsider. So for me, I'm coming into this neighborhood, into this community. I'm like, I look like y'all. We have shared experiences. Like we have similar interests. Like you will accept me to a point though. Mm -hmm. Like to a point, you're still not one of us. Jessica was done. The love she had for her kids was strong, but the frustration and the disappointment in the adults who were supposed to be running the district making the right decisions for kids was stronger. That's when I decided I'm not going to be a martyr for this district. And I told them and I told my principal, I said, I'm not teaching next year. So you either keep me by letting me grow or you lose me. And so when that last final like denial came in, I was like, that was them telling me like, we don't care. <laughs> and, and so I gave my, my principal my resignation. Once again, leadership had chased Jessica out of the door and to another neighboring school. This time, she ended up in a large charter district down the road, working part-time as a teacher and part-time as a counselor. So I taught two classes in the morning. It wasn't wasn't a tested area. I got to choose what I wanted to teach. Um, So, (laughs) yes. So I taught... um, I taught the kids who did not make growth on their reading scores. So I was more of like a critical reading teacher. Um, So I got to craft my own curriculum. We did African-American literature. The first semester I did psychology, the second semester. Um, So that was a dream, you know, but what I noticed, (laughs) and like I said, I don't, I feel bad, but it's almost like when you ask about, I'm like, who's their favorite kid? It's like, I don't have a favorite, but you do. Mm. Um, So (laughs) these were my least favorite kids to teach. They were so used to this very transactional relationship between kids and adults Mm -hmm. because of the charter environment that they had grown up in. So Mm -hmm. they had taught them that there's there's an exchange that should always be happening. And so they were I didn't trust them. I didn't trust them. And I had never had an experience when I didn't trust kids. Um, I don't think they trusted me. Despite their struggles and differences, Jessica did great things for her students in that new school. Their literacy scores bloomed. But Jessica almost wasn't even told about it. In fact, she wasn't even acknowledged for it by her administration. I mean, because my kids made amazing growth. They were, they actually were like the top five growth of the country in the in the Look network. At you. That's a yes. Yeah. But see, this is the thing. My kids called me after because they didn't find out until the next year. My kids called and told me the results. Mm -hmm. Nobody called me and said, congratulations. Um, I think we had the top growth in the region. And we had we were like, top. I think we were number three in the country for reading, reading growth. Nobody acknowledged me from the network, though. My kids called and told me that they had had an assembly for them and they had announced it in front of the school. Um, wow. So what happened was, cause I, in my role as counselor, um, I was able to help improve the overall climate 
in the school, we started doing like teacher, student, like fun things on Friday, like volleyball and basketball tournaments, stuff that they had not done before. Um, I instituted a peer mediation program. So we actually train kids. We had this organization come up and they trained the kids in peer mediation. They got sworn in as peer mediators. Their teachers would allow them to miss a class to, to mediate some little small petty issues with their peers completely by themselves. I would just be like outside of the room. They would come and wow. give me the report. They would let me know what the agreements were, what the kids were going to do. And it just really took a lot of the burden off of the principal. So she wasn't tied up with little petty stuff. Um, we, what else did we do? I was over, I was over PTA. So we had parents coming in, you know, parent engagement at the high school level can be hard. Yeah. So I had parents were decorating, cooking, serving at the, at the honors breakfast. I mean, all of this stuff that teachers usually do. Yeah. I'm having parents. I had a phenomenal parent team and support. And so it was, it was amazing. If you're getting nervous because you know, the other shoe is about to drop. You just might be a frequent listener on this show. All these great things Jessica was getting to bring as a leader in the school quickly came to a screeching halt. And once again, it wasn't anything the students had done or anything her fellow teachers had done. It was the administration. Okay. It was amazing. And then my principal left (sighs) mid-year. And she knew she was leaving, but she didn't tell me when she brought me on that she knew she was leaving because of administration. And so she had been my buffer mm-hmm. between me and administration. Um, and when she left, everything changed. So like all of the work that I had done just just became undone because the admin was never supportive of it in the first place. And so um, January comes, a new principal comes. Now she's already been, I mean, once again, it's administration and it's school, it's school leadership. And they're like, we don't like how you do things. So mm-hmm. we're going to make sure you're not successful. And so um, the administration had kind of like prepped this woman to like be anti us, anti the, the teacher team. You know, when you come in, don't listen to them. They're crazy. You're going to do it this way. And she, they really set her up for failure. And so when she came in, we're trying to tell her like, hey, you should try this. You should do this. We should do it like this. And she was just like, I'm going to do it the way they told me to do it. And the culture just eroded. And we, the first month back to school, we had a fight like every day for like the first two weeks. Oh my God. In a school where we had had maybe one bad disagreement. <laughs> For the whole first semester, we had a fight every day for the first two weeks. She she held on to this idea. It was because she had inherited this terrible uh, culture. So I'm just going to wait till the school year, new school year, start fresh. It'll be mine to build. And we're like, no, ma'am, like we need to get on this now because it's not going to get better. Yeah. Um, and so we all had a conversation with the administration and we said, if if you don't do A, B, and C, we're leaving. Yeah. And when I say we're, I mean 90% of the staff. Oh, my gosh. And they were like, we do not care. And we left. So um, they told me that I could teach, but that the uh, they were not in need of a counselor. 
But if I wanted to teach, I was welcome to come back. And I was like, well, I don't, I'm not interested in teaching. Um, and so they were just like, well, I guess this is where we go our separate way. And so about, yeah, about eight, about eight or nine teachers left. And they were just left with like a scale. I mean, so there you're talking about hiring a whole new staff. Um, the new principal didn't make it two months into the into the next year. Um, like she thought she would just be able to start this new culture and she just needed to, you know, get rid of all of the troublemakers. Oh, um wow. she didn't she didn't last two two months into the new into the new semester. It was mm-hmm. terrible. It yeah. was terrible. But every experience, and that's when I was like, I just need to pause because public education has really drained me. The rapid turnover of leadership quickly devolved into a rapid turnover of staff. And with each new wave of turnover, the culture of the school devolved even further into chaos. Jessica left K-12 education entirely by 2018. And she hasn't not looked back. The complete devaluing of her as a professional, as a leader, as an expert in her field had completely soured any chances of her returning. I mean, you said it perfectly, what you said earlier. Um, They value you Mm -hmm. as a teacher, which is a straight up oxymoron because they value you in terms of we need this person in the classroom because we know there's not many more out there to get but I don't value you as someone with ideas and problem solving skills and gifts to share. Like that value you as a teacher is a straight up oxymoron and I'm not an English teacher. So if I'm using that, (laughs) I'm sorry, but like it's, it's bizarre. And it was two school districts where you went, it was three because technically even in the one you went to your second year, you were trying to do all this outreach and they were like, stop doing that. Yeah, it's, it was everywhere. It was you valued me as a body in the in the classroom. Addison's uh, field trip. You va- you valued me as a body, not as a person, which is different. It's demoralizing. It's mm-hmm. disrespectful, and it's so yeah. wrong on so many levels. Because now here we are. Now we, here we have, and I say this okay. all the time to everyone because everyone's like, "Oh, well, they're all just leaving because of COVID." I'm like, "No, they're leaving because COVID made what was already happening worse." Yeah, I couldn't imagine teaching during during this. I could not imagine, like at all. Like no, <laughs> oh my gosh! Like it, it the, the 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 level at which I feel like we as a country failed. I mean, and the fact that leadership doesn't see how atrociously we failed during this pandemic is it is so infuriating like between churches and schools I don't know who I think failed worse (laughs) but they both just have me like what are we doing what are we doing Jessica didn't teach during COVID but watching it play out knowing what she knows about ineffective schools with poor leadership She knows it was chaos and it infuriates her knowing what she knows about how those things create problems for students in the future. And as a mother who saw firsthand what education looked like for her own four children, Jessica has since transitioned into the nonprofit space, working in a nearby town to advance education outcomes for students. But get this, 
She feels valued. She feels accepted. She feels listened to. She doesn't have to fight leadership to get them to understand her worth. She's not just a body in a room. She's a respected leader and an integral part of the team. Jason and Jessica were both valuable teachers who worked hard for their schools, but the lack of respect for educators was one component that drove them out of the classroom. Jason existed in a revolving door as newer and younger teachers constantly whirled around and passed him, and he quickly became drained at the idea of sitting in the same place while all his friends kept moving on. He didn't get much encouragement from outsiders who marveled at his two master's degrees but wondered why he was just teaching. Jessica wanted to find a way to make change at a higher level, but mismanagement and politics constantly shuffled her around, refusing to acknowledge her mission or respect her value. Every time she thought she had found a way to grow and to better support students, even after putting thousands of her own dollars out of pocket on a master's degree in school counseling, administration pushed her back into the classroom. And the more they did it, the more she realized she didn't want to be there. Now she's out of K-12 schools entirely after delivering monumental growth in a district that needed her. This has been the first part of our two-part episode on teachers' working conditions, their experiences with leadership, and how a lack of professional regard for teachers has contributed to teacher attrition. I know it seems a bit odd after the rest of our series stopping here after just two teacher interviews. But if we kept going, we'd end up with like a three-hour episode, and I know better than to try to jump that shark. (laughs) Besides, I really think it's important that listeners marinate on Jason and Jessica's stories before we move on, because they are some of the most common experiences that contribute to teacher attrition. I know there wasn't anything trigger-worthy or maybe not the biggest shock value. There wasn't just one big, bad, awful, no good, horrible event that pushed them out of the classroom. As we heard from Jessica, there were at least three instances where she thought of leaving before she actually did. But a combination of small factors about their school's conditions, from the hemorrhaging of other teachers out of the building, to the lack of instructional leadership, to the politics of administrators, it all pent up and built up until they were too drained, too spent to stay. And I think we really need to sit with that and think about how many teachers are dealing with the same thing. And not every teacher who's dealing with that will leave. But how do you think those teachers feel? And how do you think that affects their teaching when they're teaching your students, when they're teaching your children? Just think about that for a minute. You've got two whole weeks to think about it because we'll see the next version of this story two weeks from now when we hear more specifically about the impact of poor leadership, micromanagement, and unsafe schools from another former teacher. And then, finally, we'll hear from a professional instructional coach on what she's observed in schools with high teacher turnover and from instructional coaches who are desperate to find better ways to support their teachers in different difficult schools. As always, thank you for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. If you found this episode interesting and enjoyed it, please give us a rating and a review. The most important element of these stories is the lived experiences of teachers and education stakeholders. To share your perspective or to give feedback on this episode, 
please leave a voicemail or text message at 334-472-4019. You can also send a message through our website, passiontoprogress.com slash contact, or direct message our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This has been Green Apple Pod, hosted by Jessica Enderlin-Nadsom and produced by Ruth Amundsen. If you would like to follow along and learn more, please subscribe to our host organization, Passion to Progress, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. We are available for listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean.